Unlike single-engine takeoff briefs, multi-engine takeoffs are potentially much more complicated, with so many carrots dangling as potential options, which if not chosen or actioned wisely, could result in an accident or incident that otherwise could have been a positive outcome. In this episode, I'm discussing the multi-engine takeoff safety brief and the information you should be accessing in order to make the best decision possible. Lots to discuss coming right up, so strap in and let's get into it. G'day everyone and welcome to episode 14 of Flight Training Australia, the podcast all about flight training and flying in Australia and beyond. I'm your host Trent Robinson, thank you so much for joining me. For those who uh, are new to the show, don't know me, I am the Head of Operations of Flight School, Flight Examiner and Flight Instructor, currently based up here in Darwin in the Northern Territory. For more episodes you may have missed, you can go to www.flighttrainingaustralia.com.au for a list of all the podcast servers available. Also, if you could do me a huge favour and you like what you're hearing, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd love to uh, get those reviews up. So if you could help me out, I would be extremely grateful. I have no idea on how to pronounce some of these, but uh, thank you to Hompo, TZEC, Deprive No More, Big Bad State, Cricket Something, I'm not going to uh, say that one, Paps08 and t 1969 Thank you guys uh, so much for your kind words and your five-star reviews. It really means the world to me and is keeping me going. So not long ago, multi-engine endorsements weren't done all that well. They were treated by some operators more like a conversion on a 172. Very little briefing, some general handling and circuits with a few engine failures so that, well, well you know, you, you get the idea in case it happens to you. This resulted in people being qualified to fly an aircraft. They believe they are well prepared and trained to fly. And rightly so. Why wouldn't you think that? I identified some of these pilots when they came to me for check flight or IFR training, and they couldn't answer some very simple questions on multi-engine operations and considerations, which frankly alarmed me. And that was before I know everything I know now, and that's still not even everything. Right, this is early 2000s as a uh, grade one instructor. Since that time, CAS has moved to address the issue. They've released uh, several versions of uh, the CAP 5.23-1. Uh, I think it's in about its third revision now. And this laid out better training guidelines from the ground school content, what we should be briefing on, through to flight training over a number of flights instead of one, and issued by a senior instructor. To that point, the link is uh, in the description for this episode if you'd like to have a read, but do note that it will sometime be uh, replaced by a Part 61 advisory circular, and I'll update that link when it does come out. So that was then. Now, Part 61 requires formal training uh, based on a syllabus of training and a flight test with a flight examiner to issue the multi-engine class rating. And of course, as we discussed previously, a flight review every two years. So since then, what's changed? Well, more time should be spent on scenarios and discussion. A lot more time briefing and 
working through these concepts in the air. It'll obviously change from school to school, but hopefully you're with a school that recognises the importance of these discussions and they have those with you. So let's look at some of the elements we should be just, uh, considering when preparing our multi-engine takeoff safety brief. So if you haven't already, previous episode last week was based on the single-engine uh, takeoff safety brief. So based on that, with a few little additions that we discussed, we can start off with something along these lines. If I recognise or suffer an engine failure, fire or failure before blue line, I'll close the throttles, come to a stop and land ahead. If I have an engine failure or fire after blue line, I'll perform the following actions. Mixture up, pitch up, throttle up, gear up, flap up, dead leg, dead engine, close the suspect throttle and feather the appropriate engine. All right, so who of you says something like this? Is this you? Having a think about it now, do you feel that that is sufficient? Now, you could say, well, yeah, I've got thousands of hours of multi-engine flying, so, yeah, I feel it's sufficient. Or you might be early on your days and that was all you've been taught or that's what you've defaulted back to. Let's run through a few of the issues that I have with that statement so far. Firstly, one of the most common errors I see pilots make is rushing straight into the drill. Right, this leaves the aircraft potentially, if even only momentarily, out of control because you aren't flying the aircraft anymore. You're playing with levers and not paying attention to the attitude, direction and speed of the aircraft. So we need to add this into our brief in order to program the brain into action should the needs arise. And remember, that's the whole point of a take or safety brief. We're doing a last minute dress rehearsal to think about the actions we're going to do in the event of so that should it actually happen, we can spring into action much faster and be prepared rather than sitting there stunned and thinking about it for the first time. All right, so let's try this again. If I suffer an engine failure, fire or failure before blue line, I'll close the throttles and come to a stop or land ahead. If I have an engine failure or fire after blue line, I'll control the aeroplane ball centred, wings level, not below blue line, and perform the following actions, and so on. This process will help slow you down and ensure the aircraft is under control before commencing the drill. We lose control, the best engine failure drill in the world is not going to save you. The next consideration is the takeoff roll. Now, firstly, we might want to break up the roll into accelerating up to VR, and then the critical phase of flight, VR to VYSE or blue line. Now, for those uninitiated in all things multi-engine, let me give you a few definitions here so you can follow along. Hopefully, if you're a pilot, you've come across V-speeds before, and they're used for various phases of flight and critical speeds we need to remember and observe. So VR is rotate speed, VY, best rate of climb, those familiar with single engine should know this one already. VYSE is an extension of that, and it's simply the best single engine rate of climb in a one engine and operative or OEI scenario. Still with me? Good, because there's more ahead. All right, so back to our critical phase point. The danger we need to consider around VR to VYSE is we are potentially airborne, either just got airborne or closer to our VYSE blue line point. 
And that could be anywhere up to 15, 20 knot speed gap. But the thing to remember is we don't have the performance to climb in an asymmetric condition. Now, I don't want to go into all the air law, all the theory and everything else uh, to do with twin training. I'm not trying to replace the briefs, all right? But in essence, we have control up to blue line, but we don't have performance. Now, some pilot operating handbooks will suggest that you can fly level in ground effect, raise your gear and take off flap if applicable, accelerate to blue line in ground effect, and then climb away asymmetric. Now, I've flown brand new twins. I've flown old twins. I have not ever been able to simulate this once. And that is with my knowledge that we're about to have an engine failure and immediately control and drill. No time delays, no nothing. All right, there's an old saying that says in an multi-engine aircraft, in the event of an engine failure, the other engine is simply there to take you to the scene of the accident. Now, this is a scenario I've been working on for a long time, and this is why I'm saying you must stay in control of the aircraft. Performance is secondary. That, again, unfortunately, is a whole other discussion. But we need to consider that anything below blue line, the aeroplane will not accelerate and fly for most light twin aircraft. All right, so what else do we need to consider? Assuming takeoff distance available and required have obviously been ticked off, for multi-engine aircraft, we have another one, ASDR, or Accelerate Stop Distance Required. This is a multi-engine consideration for essentially how much distance we need to accelerate from a standing start to rotate point, reject the takeoff, and come to a complete stop. So generally, only a worry in short runways. So let's have a look. For example, the runway is a 1,000 metres long. We do our calculation. This is a performance chart, hopefully in your POH. And this will give you 1,200 metres, say, accelerate stop distance required. So that's indicating we are going to overrun the runway by 200 metres. This needs to be briefed. We need to cover this. We're going to overrun the runway. Well, why? Doesn't that mean we just can't go? Well, no. Remember, this is a worst-case scenario, well, one-off, the worst-case scenario points of rejection to come to a complete stop. I'm not going to go into the whole details of it all again, and this will be covered in your multi-training, but we need to prepare our brain that at the end of the runway will come up really fast and whatever lies beyond it is going to be there too so that we don't try and do something silly like get the aircraft into the air, which we've just discussed, is incapable of doing so. So by including this consideration into our take or safety brief, we're going to be in a far better position to keep the aircraft in a forward impact accident rather than an out-of-control one. It starts getting a little bit grim, doesn't it? But we do have to talk about these things because we need to make the best decisions in a bad situation. The final thing we want to consider that we're going to talk about today, which rarely applies in the typical strips we fly out of, is a decision speed or a decision point. Now, before I go any further, I want to acknowledge that these terms are often inter-exchanged. And when you look at how they're being applied, you'll see that we are 
essentially talking about the same thing. So what am I talking about then? Well, decision speed is typically, as per what I've been talking about already, blue line. Anything before blue line, we're going to stop. Anything after blue line, we go. And again, there are variations on this, but I'll leave that for your multi-training. However, some strips, due to their either their length or surrounding terrain, require a different approach. Imagine, for example, an airstrip up in the mountains. At the end of the runway is a valley. To attempt to stop and overrun the strip is obviously going to be certain death. We're going to overrun the, the, uh, the runway and crash down into the ravine below. So we have no option but to take the problem airborne, where we stand at least a better chance, although not a great one. It's not a pleasant discussion, but it is reality. So in this case, we need to crunch some numbers, have a think about it all, and determine a decision point or an earlier decision speed. So for up to that point, say a beam, a particular hangar, or maybe the windsock, we've, we can stop from that point. Once we cross that point, we have no choice but to take the aircraft airborne and do our very best. This needs to be considered in the briefing room before we go flying. There's a bunch of things I haven't mentioned yet, such as single-engine climb performance, dealing with terrain or obstacles on upwind, and this is assuming you're even visual. It all changes completely for IFR scenarios, departing into instrument conditions. So given the time that I've got to talk about this, I don't want to overcomplicate things, not cover the topic properly or replace proper training as it's something that needs to be discussed in detail. But I hope after talking about all of this, it helps you think a bit more about how the brief you give and prepare for your next flight. If you're twin rated or interested in more, I encourage you to have a look at the CAP guidelines. There's several great textbooks out there as well. And you can also look at some of the performance regs in part 91 and also in the CEO 20.7.4 or 20.7.1. Now, I appreciate that there's many discrepancies, variations and things to consider. And like I've tried to indicate, I am definitely not trying to cover all of that in a short 15 minute podcast. But hopefully it gives you a little bit of food for thought. And if you are flying like twins and not really considering what's around you, time to have a bit more of a think. If you've got any questions, feel free to fire them my way. I'm happy to expand on them in a later episode. All right, so that's it for this week's episode. Thank you again for downloading and listening in. It's really great to uh, be talking to you wherever you are. Remember, I love to hear that feedback. So if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, uh, Apple Podcast, please leave me a review and share it with your friends. I understand also on Spotify you can leave a five-star review. I've uh, just downloaded the latest version, still can't figure out how to do that, but if anyone knows, feel free to drop me a line. If you'd like to reach me, you can get me on info at trentrobinsonaviation.com.au. Simply put podcast in the subject line and send me your questions and I'll do my best to answer it in a future episode. Or, of course, you can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. Links are in the description below. Simply search for Trent Robinson Aviation. I will be uh, doing another mailbox episode soon to cover off the email questions I've been receiving. So get them in quick and uh, I'll answer them ASAP. Until next week, clear skies. Now remember the golden rule, aviate, navigate, communicate. Cheers.